0: Our scripture reading today will be from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. It is on page 746 in your pew Bible. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. My ultimate
1: goal in this Move Closer series is to help you and I believe that nothing on this earth, no relationship, no experience, no treasure, will bring you more satisfaction and more joy than delighting in God. That is the message of the Bible. And when we look through it, when we look through it as God intends for us to understand it, we will see that in every page. Maybe it's been a a bit unusual for you to to explore the tabernacle as, as a study about our intimacy with God. But when we remember that it was God's design so that he could dwell with his people, Then it begins to make sense. And the more that we see of what he's revealed in the tabernacle and in his word, the more we see his heart for us. So, my challenge throughout this whole series comes from Psalm 37, verses three and four. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is God's promise to us. Now, it's not a promise that if you check off all the right boxes, God will bless you and make you wealthy and healthy and um, famous and all those kind of things. It has nothing to do with that. What its promise is, is that when God himself becomes your delight and my delight, He will transform your heart to desire what is most fulfilling in your life, what is most significant. Because the problem is most of our desires are actually too small. It's not that we want too much. It's that we desire too little. And what God wants us to discover is that He offers incredible, incredible pleasure in Him. Well, last week we explored um, the Ark of the Covenant and I want to I come off of that and look at this idea of covenant because covenant in, in the Bible is an incredibly significant theme all the way through the Bible. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was called that because it contained the, the tablets that God had written, which was part of the, um, the Torah, the Ten Commandments that were there in the Ark. Um, but it meant more than that. It meant all that God had revealed. It pointed ultimately to all of God's promises. And, and so in order for us to really grab a hold of that, we need to see what Jesus is talking about when he says that at the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood. Here's what he tells us about that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. And Hebrews is a great commentary on everything in the Old Testament. It helps us see how what is predicted and uh, modeled in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ and to the realities of heaven and to the relationship that we can have with God. So here's what the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. He says in Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 24, Therefore, he, which is speaking of Jesus, if we were to back up, we would see that um, clearly, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. What... What the book of Hebrews is doing here is it's establishing the legality of Jesus' new covenant. How he has fulfilled the old covenant in that he took our place. He died in our place and fulfilled the old covenant so that he could give us something even greater. Something more beautiful. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all of the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God is very consistent in his message that what is required to pay the price of sin is death, but it's a price he was willing to pay for us. That's the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. And and what he has given us, is absolutely incredible. What, what I want to do today is, is look at the covenants in the Bible. Now, most of the time when a pastor preaches on covenants, he'll go through the covenant that God made with Adam and the covenant that he made with Noah and the covenant that he made with Abram or Abraham and Moses and David and go through all those different covenants. And I'm not going to do that today. For one, I would preach even longer than I normally do and, and I won't do that to you. But what I want to do is I want to show you the kinds of covenants that are in the Scripture because there are at least four different kinds of covenants and they are all something that God, through Jesus Christ, has already done for you and for me. And when we understand their significance, we'll find God is amazing. Now, the word covenant is... is, um, A very important word. It comes from a Hebrew word, bereth, in the Old Testament, and it is translating it to cut where blood flows. It, It is not, sometimes we compare a covenant with a contract, and it is much deeper than that because implied within the idea of a covenant is that it can only be broken by death. It is not just a a promise or an agreement that once the terms are broken, then the contract is over. It is something far more lasting and significant than that. And what God wants us to see, I believe, is that he is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And here's why that's so important. If God has proven to us that he keeps his covenants, then what he promises to you and to me he will also fulfill that's the great news about this this is not simply an intellectual study about things that happened a long time ago this is about how god keeps his promises and how you and i can absolutely trust him entrust all that we are to him now in the scripture we discover that there are at least four types of covenants and Um, They are are called a salt covenant, a sandal covenant, a blood covenant, and a marriage covenant. Now, all of those have a connection to this idea of uh, to cut to the point where there is blood. And and oftentimes, it may not make sense to us, but the sign, for instance, of the covenant that God made with Abram, whose name he changed to Abraham, was circumcision which was to cut, to make a mark that proved that they were under an agreement, under a promise of God. But there are other types of covenants that are binding in the same kind of way and significant as well. And what I believe is that Jesus has fulfilled all of these covenants towards you and me. And so the first one that we see, first type of covenant is called a salt covenant. And it named... Its name comes from an ancient practice where most people would um, carry with them, uh, a, a degree, when, in ancient times, some salt, because salt was incredibly valuable. In, in fact, um, have you, I know for many of you, English is not your first language, so you may not be familiar with this phrase, but um, tell me if you are. How many of you have ever heard, he's not worth his salt? Has anyone ever heard that saying? Okay. Here's where that comes from. That comes from the pay that a Roman soldier would get. He was paid oftentimes not in coin, but in salt. Because salt was precious. Remember, in ancient times, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have air conditioning. um, They didn't have any way to keep their food fresh except for preserving it with salt. And so it was incredibly valuable. And, uh, And so oftentimes, you were actually paid in salt. And if you were to make a salt covenant, here's what would happen. I'll, I'll pick on uh, uh, Alia. Come here. Sorry. You are worth your salt, brother. There you, there you go. Okay. So if we were going to make an agreement together, um, Alia and I would come together and we would agree about something. What's, what's something I can do for you? <laughs> I like taking risks. What do you need, my friend? (laughs) All right, here's the covenant I'm going to make with Alia. Alia, I will take you to lunch. Okay, it's a good deal. It's simple. You could have asked for anything, man. You could have have got a car. Dude. (laughs) All right, so here's what would happen. If we were to make a promise, a covenant, an agreement together, he would open up his salt and I would open up my salt And I would pour some into uh, a mitre or here, and you would pour some of his in there. And then we would crush it together. And then we would take bread. Some for you and some for me. And we would dip it in the salt. And that doesn't stick very well, but (laughs) pretend like it did. (laughs) And we would, we would eat it together, okay? This is part of the salt covenant. But then the next thing that we would do is now his salt and my salt are mixed together so that there's absolutely no way for me to separate my grains from his grains. And so I would take part of this salt and pour it back into his and some of it back into mine, and the symbol would be that our lives are so interconnected that it would be just as impossible for us to break our agreement over whatever it was as it would be to separate out his grains of salt from my grains of salt. Does that make sense? It's saying that we are absolutely connected together and it's a promise that cannot be broken. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay? Okay. So that's a salt covenant. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of becoming one, of uniting together. And it comes from the scripture in that every offering that was offered before the Lord was to be given with salt. Because in the scripture, salt represents eternity and it also represents the justice of God. In Leviticus chapter 2, it says you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. In the same way, when you would burn incense in the tabernacle, you would offer that incense mix that we looked at a few weeks ago with salt because it represents, because it lasts and because it preserves, it represents something that is eternal not just temporary, not even just lifelong, but a reflection of God's eternal presence. Now, if you were to go to uh, a Friday evening Shabbat meal in a Jewish home, even today, here's what would happen. When you sat down um, at the table for the meal, um, the leader of the home would invite you as his guest and he would serve you bread and salt. And you would take the bread and you would dip it in the salt, much like Alia did, and you would eat of that. And, and it happens at every um, Sabbath or Shabbat meal. And it was a picture that they would practice as a family throughout generation after generation after generation to remind them of two things about God. The salt represented the severity of God, or his justice and his holiness. That nothing can stand against, nothing can erode, just like salt. When salt touches something else, it takes over its presence. So the salt represented, in essence, the fear of the Lord, that he is holy. But the bread represented the goodness, the kindness of the Lord. That God is both holy, severe, and he is kind, gracious. And every time that you would begin your Sabbath meal with that bread dipped in salt, you would be reminded that God is both holy and gracious. And I want to live between those two things. That's the picture of that salt covenant. And it's a beautiful picture that we have even today. Most likely, even when Jesus celebrated the Passover, on the table would have been salt. And, and in, at times, probably somewhere during the meal, they would have dipped their bread in the salt as a reminder of how God's promises, God's covenant is eternal. This is one of the reasons why they actually uh, dip the, um, the karpos, which in the Passover meal, it's the green vegetable in salt water. It's a reminder of the eternal promises of God. And so when we celebrate, maybe even today, when you partake of communion, there's some salt on the table just as a reminder that God is holy and God is eternal. And the eternal God sent his son to be with us. And what did Jesus instruct us? Every time we do baptism here, one of the things that I I ask people to do is to put their finger in in a bowl of salt and touch it to their tongue to remind them, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. It is a reminder that we are his presence, that his life is intermingled with ours and our life is intermingled with his, that he is our representative in heaven and we are his representative on earth. Therefore, we need to rightly represent who God is, both in his holiness and in his grace. Jesus fulfilled a salt covenant for you and I. Now, the, the second kind of covenant Um, The salt covenant reflects a union of two people whose lives are so connected that they can't be taken apart. And Jesus has chosen us, and for all who believe in him, he is the promise of God's eternal life. He is the promise that he abides in you and we abide in him. And it is a life that is intermingled with him that cannot be separated. Well, the second one that I, that I mentioned is the sandal covenant. And this one seems even stranger than the salt covenant to a certain degree. But what you need to understand is that in ancient Israel, um, you, you like my, anybody like my sandals? Okay, they're obviously not mine. We've, actually, we have absolutely no idea whose sandals these are. They were in our closet. So I don't know where they came from, but they are now official sandal covenant covenant sandals. Yes, that's what they are. Here's what would happen in ancient Israel. Um, Today, if you were going to mark off your property, you would have a um, a surveyor come and you would draw the lines and you'd put down a stake at the corner of your property to show where your property began or ended and another person's began. Well, in ancient Israel, what they did is they would take their old sandals And that's exactly what they would do. They would mark the corner of their property and then they'd put a a rock on it and they'd say, okay, that, that sandal, the one that's really, really smelly over there about on the other side of that hill, that's mine, that's the edge of my property. And your property is on the other side of the smelly sandal. And so it was, the sandal covenant was about inheritance, about what would be passed on to the next generation. And it comes into play in our life from the idea of the book of Ruth where there is a kinsman redeemer. Ruth had married into a Jewish family and, um, and she was redeemed by Boaz who was a relative of Naomi, her, her mother-in-law. And when he made an agreement to marry Ruth, he became the kinsman redeemer in that he would pay the price required to make sure she had the inheritance that would have been due to her family. And he paid that price. In the book of Deuteronomy, I'm not gonna take the time to read it today, but in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 25 through five, it talks about the responsibility if um, if a man died, And he left his wife without any heirs, then it was the responsibility of a brother to take that wife as his own and to raise his raise and to have children that would be in the name of the Son, and he would be called a kinsman redeemer. He would be one who was carrying on the rights and the inheritance of of his brother. If he didn't do that, what the book of Deuteronomy says is that the woman had the right to go up to the man in the public square, take his sandal off of his feet, and spit in his face and say, You have not agreed to your responsibility. And he would be known from that day on, the scripture says, as the man who lost his sandal. He, it would be a shame. This is also, by the way, in the Middle East, sometimes maybe you've even seen this in a press conference, when a leader does not fulfill their promises, one of the things that they do to protest is they'll take the sandal off their foot and they'll throw it at them. Now, I'm hoping nobody throws anything at me today, but if, if, I, if I mess up, go for it. It's a sign that you hadn't kept your promise. That's the sandal covenant. Now, what Jesus has done for us is that he has become our kinsman redeemer. He's paid the price for us to receive his Inheritance. That's what it was all about. The picture that we see in the beautiful book of the love story in Ruth between Ruth and Boaz is a picture of God's love, of God buying us back in order for us to become what the scripture says in the New Testament joint heirs with Jesus. You see, He has welcomed you and I not just to be servants, but to receive the fullness of His inheritance. The full rights as a son, as a daughter of the king. He's done that for us. Isn't that beautiful? He says, this is what I want you to have. But it gets better. It gets incredibly, incredibly amazing. The third type of covenant is is specifically a blood covenant. And the blood covenant is the most binding covenant any two people or groups can enter into. Once committed to, the only way out of it is by death of one or both of the covenant makers. It is something that is never ever entered into lightly. A blood covenant is a union of two people or two parties into one new person. In essence, it's becoming a new creation because your bond is absolutely unbreakable in which everything is shared in common. It is an exchanged life where when you enter into a blood covenant, um, everything that the other person offers to you and everything that you offer to that person becomes one, united as one element. The Mosaic covenant was a blood covenant in that it required blood to be sprinkled on the tabernacle, what we read about in Hebrews, and that nothing um, could be cleansed without the shedding of blood. Hebrews goes on to tell us that all these things are simply copies or shadows of a better covenant to come because the lives of animals could never remove sin. The life of an animal is not a sufficient substitute for our sin. It required a greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the old broken covenant with his death, with his blood. And he offers us a new covenant. Well, that's a blood covenant. And then very quickly, because I'm going to run out of time here, the fourth type is a marriage covenant. And this is incredibly significant because this is part of the new covenant that Jesus offers us. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Marriage represents the ultimate and most intimate relationship possible. And the Lord desires that each one of us progress in our relationship with Him, and and grow in our intimacy with Him. And God uses this symbol of marriage to describe how He wants us to know Him, the closeness, the encouragement, the blessing, the honesty, the authenticity He wants in our relationship. There's a very famous verse in Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, and, and it In this, we find where these covenants come together, especially the marriage covenant. Now, you'll know this verse, but you'll never think of it in terms of a marriage, but this is what it means. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, to our ears, because we don't have a Jewish history background, it doesn't sound like a marriage covenant, but it absolutely is. Here's here's how this connects. I have here, I'm going to pass these around. This is called a ketubah. It's a great word to say. They're really beautiful and they're ornate. And these are written in Aramaic, and they're the oldest known um, existing... Ketubah is over 2,500 years old, and they come out of Israel, and what this is, is this is the prenuptial agreement where the groom reveals all of his promises that he will do, that he will keep for his bride. The bride doesn't offer any promises in this. Now, in modern day, they use vows, but in the original sense, in, in the way this was established in Israel... Um, before the time of Christ, the ketubah would be your marriage promise to your bride before you ever got married. And when you were ready to give that ketubah, in fact, I'll just pass these around because they're just kind of cool to look at. Um, When you were ready to offer that ketubah, which would include the redemption price, the bride price that you were willing to pay as a groom, you would go to the door of your um, intended bride and you would knock on the door and if she was going to receive your proposal, what she would do is she would tell the father, answer the door and invite him in. And there the groom would present to the father all of his promises, everything that he would do that would ensure their relationship together. And then they would sit down and they would have a meal together. They would begin with a cup of wine that would begin their agreement or their covenant for marriage. And they would, would talk about it and the father would be able to say whether or not everything that was proposed in the ketubah met his standards and whether he gave permission for his bride or for his daughter to marry the groom. Now, this is a picture of what Jesus has done for us because all of the responsibility in the ketubah is on the groom. It is his promises that he must fulfill. And in fact, what happens with the ketubah is the groom does not sign it, but he has two witnesses who will sign it to assure that um, the groom has met all of the conditions laid out in the contract, in the agreement, or covenant would be a much better word, the ketubah. Now, would you like to know Jesus' ketubah for you? Because he gives you one. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what God offers us in his new covenant. Jeremiah 31 Verse 31. And I want you to listen for the I will statements in here because these are God's promises to us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. You see how the marriage part was was intended to be a part of the original covenant that was broken. God always reveals himself um, as one who loves his people as a groom loves his bride. That's why in Ephesians where it says and implores husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for them, that picture runs all through the scripture because this is what God is promising to us. and Here's what he says. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. These are, these are wedding vows. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise. This is the the wedding proposal that Jesus is making to us. And understand, this was a binding contract that could not be broken. When we read about... In, in the New Testament, how Joseph was espoused or engaged to Mary, it means he had already given her his ketubah. He had already made the promises of all that he would do as a groom, all that he would provide. And when he found out that she was expecting, he sought a way to not shame her because he loved her. But he was willing to fulfill all of his promises it was the same kind of agreement. And it's what, where all the responsibility was on the groom. This is what Jesus does for us. The responsibility is on us. And here's the blessings of what he offers us. He says, knowing God personally, they shall all know me. No longer do we need human priests to intercede on our behalf. Through Jesus Christ, we can know God personally and intimately. Have you ever reflected how incredible it is that the God of the universe is interested in you, not for what you can do for him, but just because he loves you for you. That's why the psalmist says, what is man that you care for him, or that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Secondly, he says, I will put truth into our minds. I will write my law, and when it says law, it's not just the Ten Commandments. What he's talking about there is the Torah, all of the revelation of God, the complete revelation of who God is, he wants to teach into your mind and my mind. That's why his word is such a treasure and why his Holy Spirit will teach us when we immerse ourselves in his word, he will show us his promises, his goodness, his greatness, his holiness so that we can grow closer in intimacy with him. He also says that he'll not only put his truth on our minds, but his promises will be written in our hearts. He'll give to us in a way that we understand and that transforms us into a new identity that finds its source in the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Those promises are all true in him. He also says, I will give you forgiveness of all your sin. God in his new covenant through Christ completely forgives us of our sin. In fact, Psalm 103 verse 12 says that God separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. In other words, it's separated in such a way that it can never meet again. That's the beauty of his promise. And what is more, it's not only separated from us, But did you see what he said? He says, their sin I will remember no more. Now that is a miracle. Here's why that's a miracle, because I don't want you to just gloss over that. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So how is it he can forget our sin? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, it is a wonderful thing when the omnipotence, which means the all power of God, overcomes his omniscience, his all-knowing. When the omnipotent love will not allow his omniscience to recall. There's sin I will remember no more. He doesn't remember it because he laid it all on Christ. And he sees you and I through the DNA of Jesus. Through his perfect life. Through his shed blood. That's what he does for us. Now it gets, it gets a little, little better. And I know I have to hurry because we're out of time. Turn over just a page, if you have your Bibles open to Jeremiah, to Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 40 gives us more of this ketubah. And if I had time to really unpack it, it's absolutely amazing because it's laid out like the five books in a traditional ketubah is laid out like the five books of the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible. He says this, they shall be my people and I will be their God. He's repeating the wedding vows. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear, it's like the salt, in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. What he's saying is that we are going to be united with God in a way that it cannot be broken. We'll have union with God. He will give us one heart. That's why it's so important to the Lord Jesus that you and I live in unity with one another because it's a reflection of our union with God and how beautiful it is when people from every different tribe, tongue, and nation come together as one in Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll put my fear in their hearts, which is the beginning of wisdom, the sense of awe and reverence for who God is, and yet he embraces us with his grace. And it says, they will not depart from me. God gives us the assurance that we cannot depart from him because he is faithful, not because we are. That's what God is offering you and I. That's the new covenant he instituted at the Lord's Supper. So when we think about Jesus taking bread, breaking it, and saying, this is my body given for you, he's saying, I'm giving all of my life to you as a groom gives all of his life for his bride. I am making promises that the only way they could ever be broken is if I could cease to be who I am. In fact, in between the two passages that I read, God says basically that. If he could quit being God, that's the only way that this covenant would be broken. But he can't quit being who he is. So he offers himself to us in the bread. And then he says with the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. And if we were to to follow and trace through the, the whole process of the ketubah, you would find that the next thing that, That happens is as they have a meal, they have a ceremony together where they seal the promise with a glass of wine. That it seals the covenant. Then the witnesses will sign it and they wait for the marriage supper to consummate their marriage. And that's why Jesus also said, there in the New Testament, that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it with us together in his Father's kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this was a beautiful proposal from the God of the universe to you saying, will you come to me and find life in me? Find union in me. Find wholeness in me. Find forgiveness in me. That's the covenant. God offers us. So today, as we partake of the bread and of the cup, let us do so with a sense of wonder at what God has done for us. He's made all the commitment. Now, when I read that in Revelation chapter 3, he says he stands at the door and knocks. He says if anyone will open to him, he will come in and eat with them, and dine with them. And then he goes on to say, to those who overcome. And in fact, the letters from that point on that Jesus writes to the, to the seven churches, to his bride, he repeats that phrase over and over again, to him who overcomes. What that means is that the bride's responsibility was to be pure, to allow the love of her groom to transform her To overcome the temptations of this life, to overcome the weakness of our flesh, to be so consumed with the love of the groom that she would live in purity. That's what Jesus asks us to do as well. That's why we are not to take the Lord's Supper lightly because he calls us to overcome, to come in purity. And the great news is, He's so gracious that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, forgive us of our sins, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In a moment, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and to to first partake of the Lord's Supper. But today, as you come and receive it, I pray that you will come and receive the cup and the bread with a sense of wonder, wonder, of what God has already promised and done. He has fulfilled all of these covenants because he desires us. On the table, there is both regular bread and gluten-free, if you need that. And we have um, both wine and juice. If you take of the juice, we now have um, some reusable cups And so I just would ask you afterwards to either bring it back down front or there's a box out in the foyer where we can collect those and wash them. But I invite you to come to the table and honor the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your love for us is so incredible that you are willing to give your son for us. Lord Jesus, what you have done the offering of your love, your katuba, your promises to us are more than our minds can imagine. Thank you is too small. So Lord, in place of a simple thanks, we give the only thing we have to offer. We give ourselves to you as you have given yourself to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Would you enable us to overcome, to live lives that look more and more like Jesus, to pursue our love for you in such a way that it transforms everything about our identity, everything about our life. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. You took bread, Lord Jesus. You broke it and blessed it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Lord, thank you for that gift. We praise you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the cup. We ask your blessing upon it as we partake of it as your church. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We do not receive it lightly, but we drink it in remembrance of you and in anticipation that one day soon, you, Lord Jesus, will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Bless this time, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.